From field to table and flame to fork, the pursuit of the outdoor connection is ingrained deep within one's spirit. The draw to the flame of a campfire is felt from around the world. Why do we hunt? Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Quarter to nine on, what is it, Tuesday? So yeah, episode 14 of the Campfire Conversations. A little bit of a long day for me. I already recorded one podcast this morning with uh, Talk is Sheep. But hey, it's always a good chat uh, with you. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Steve. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was a great podcast tonight. Oh, yeah. A topic that not many people, especially podcasts, get a chance to dig into is about bats. And no, for sure. Like, I, I could have used a bat in my room right here or in my office. There's a couple of mosquitoes bugging me during the chat, and I'm sw- trying not to swat, but yeah, it was, it was cool. Learned a lot. Yeah, I learned a lot as well. It, you know, I, 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 she, Corey is a, uh, you know, a true expert on bats, obviously. She has her PhD mm-hmm. on bat research, and, you know, having the opportunity to, to sit down with her and have this discussion was a, a real privilege. And yeah, I think anybody that listens is going to learn a lot more about bats than they knew before. Totally agreed. I thought it was a neat parallel near near the end of the the chat we were having. How she talked about needing to how the loss of bats across the North America is causing farmland to disappear, and how the bats are helping uh, regulate numbers of mosquitoes. And it was kind of a neat parallel talking about how wildlife needs to be balanced across all species. And we 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 encounter that as hunters as well. Right. So it, it shows that you need to manage things right down from mosquitoes and bugs all the way up through, uh, ungulates, right. And, and predators. It was pretty cool. Pretty cool. Like even, even bats help, uh, regulate, uh, balanced well, species. So, in, cool. in way more than I think people would realize, because, mm-hmm. I mean, bats are nocturnal largely and, and people don't see them, but you know, there are millions of them and they're doing a very important service to, you know, if, if we want to look at it that way to humanity by, you know, acting as free pest control, you know, mm-hmm. units that, that go out and, and, and manage pests that really make our lives difficult. So yeah, if we lose bats, we're going to have some big problems. So oh, totally agree. And I, I've spent countless hours sitting on the beach as a kid, watching the bats come in at the twilight and whipping around and you, you swear to God, they're going to hit you in the face, but they, they don't. Yeah, they and do the last the, minute turn. They're fully the, aware the you're there. Minute, they're, yeah. they're right oh. at you. And yeah, like learned a lot. I, I didn't know bats could see. I, I thought they were blind. And she blows that myth right out of the water. Yeah, I, I knew they could see, but I thought they had very poor vision. But, uh, you know, as, as Corey had told us, you know, they, they have excellent vision. And uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't have guessed that. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I learned a lot. And I'm sure anybody who listens to this podcast is going to enjoy it and learn a lot as well. Totally. So... Yeah, you sent me just segue a little bit there. It's it's mushroom foraging season, isn't it? It is. Yes, it's it, well, it, particularly this year in the Kootenays because we've had rain pretty much every day all spring. And as much as I don't like it, the mushrooms do like it. So I've been <laughs> uh, I've been very successful in the last uh, couple of little hikes I've been on getting oyster mushrooms. There's lots oh, of growing. You finally got some time to get out, which is pretty awesome, right? You haven't had much time of that, so yeah, no, I get getting a little more time. But I, I mean, even tonight, I just went for about an hour walk with my wife. We just went for a little hike, and yeah, I managed to to get enough mushrooms for tomorrow's supper. So I was happy oh, about cool. that. That's pretty cool. So what do you? What kind of? T- uh, for, for those that don't know, what kind of, I guess, terrain do you look for for oysters to start with? Uh, oyster mushrooms, and I'm not an expert on oyster mushrooms, but they grow on hardwoods, either dead or dying hardwoods. Like in, in my area here, it seems like I've seen them mostly on aspen trees. Okay. Uh, like you won't find them on conifers as far as I know. Uh, and you won't find them. I don't think you'll ever find them on a on a fully healthy tree. It's usually a dying tree or a dead tree. Oh. Uh, so anywhere you're going to find a lot of aspen, where you get a good moisture, uh, you have a chance of finding oyster mushrooms, and and they're well worth uh, harvesting if you do find them because you know you just sautéed in butter, salt, pepper. They're maybe a little garlic salt. They're just fantastic. Yeah, super super easy for uh, the the new forager to get into. Like we, we had a great conversation. Oh, God, if we we could go off on a whole tangent there about mushrooms, so we we had that great conversation. Was episode ten with Tyson, right? So if anybody if anybody wants to listen to a mushroom episode, that's episode ten. 
So before we go off on a tangent, we'll let everybody get to episode 14 of the Campfire Conversations. And uh, this is about bats. Enjoy. The perception of hunting, you know, has changed. It's our duty now, our responsibility as hunters, to change it back. We've spent the last few decades trying, you know, espousing that, that message, preaching that message about wildlife conservation. You know, we've, it's fallen on deaf ears, all of our attempts. I think what, what we have to do is, is maybe uh, appeal to the emotional side or the visceral side. We have to tell our story. We know what we are. We know how deeply we care about wildlife. It's just the people out there that are, that are you know, voting to get rid of hunting, they don't understand our stories. Sometimes we, we have to translate it to something that they understand. All right, here we are, episode 14, with Steve and our guest, Corey Lawson. How are you doing tonight, Corey? Great, thanks. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, it's a real pleasure having you here. Oh, thank you. So, <laughs> yeah, well, excellent. So, all right, so Corey, uh, for the people listening, um, you are one of the few bat experts in North America, I believe. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I, I guess you would say that. I'm, uh, yeah, definitely a really baddie. And um, <laughs> uh, there's not a, you know, there's a growing number of, of baddie people in North America. But certainly when I first started, it was a small group. And, and I've been doing it for a long time, <laughs> like 20 years. So. So, so where do you come from originally? Uh, from Alberta, um, prairies, grew up on a ranch where there was actually not a lot of bats. Uh, in fact, no, uh, whereabouts no. was that? Oh, it, oh, it, around Hannah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hannah, Alberta. Um, Nickelback's from there. I know that name. Yes. He was actually <laughs> in my sister's grade. <laughs> oh. You're younger than me. Yep. So, uh, and then, I, yeah, I went to the University of Calgary. Uh, so I spent a good chunk of my life in Alberta, actually. So you did your undergrad and graduate studies in Calgary? I did, yes. Ended up with four degrees from the University of Calgary. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Couldn't, just couldn't stop, you know, going for a collector's item. But uh, yeah, actually the last part of my uh, PhD, actually a good chunk of my PhD in the end was spent at University of Alberta because my PhD was uh, using genetics to answer questions about bats on the landscape and they did not have the facilities at that time at the University of Calgary. So I actually spent a fair bit of time uh, at a different lab, at a genetics lab at the U of A. And yeah, got to live in Edmonton for a little while. So that was good. So you did your PhD uh, on bat genetics. Uh, was, was your ma did you do a master's degree as well? I did, yeah. And and was it that was, related to bats as well? It was, yeah. Um, I actually did an undergrad degree. Uh, project on it as well. <laughs> so okay. uh, yeah, I just, you know, I really got uh, interested in bats right away and just kind of kept going. And I did take a break in there. So after I finished my master's, which was on um, studying prairie bats and, and how they roost in uh, in the river valleys in Southern Alberta and looking at, um, specifically looking at big brown bats and them roosting in rock crevices and, and then those that were roosting in buildings in Medicine Hat, and I was con comparing them. Um, how were they different when they were living in buildings versus in, in rock crevices? And so I did that for my master's. And then, um, yeah, and then I went straight on to my, my PhD, which was then looking at the genetic component of bats in southern Alberta and, and into north central Montana, looking at more species that live in the river valleys and trying to understand... Um, how they use the river valleys and, and if they ever migrated uh, out of the river valleys to to breed, for example, if they always stayed within the river valleys. And so, uh, but, but before I actually started my graduate work, um, I took five years off in between uh, undergrad and graduate work and taught high school, <laughs> actually, up in Lloydminster. <laughs> okay, interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. So then what, what year did you complete your PhD? In 2007. 2007. Yeah. You know, it took me actually, um, a, my master's was quick. <laughs> I did that in like one field season of, but then I realized like, you know, graduate work and research is 
really great lifestyle. <laughs> so I was in no rush to finish my piece. You didn't want to rush through it. Well, fair didn't enough. Want to rush yeah. it. No. <laughs> so yeah. And then, uh, okay. then I moved to BC after that, actually. So, so what, what brought you to BC? Was it uh, employment opportunities? No, it was my uh, now husband. <laughs> so okay. He's also a, a, a biologist. That's right. Yeah, Michael Proctor. And he uh, researches grizzly bears. He was actually doing his PhD um, under the same supervisor as, as I was uh, in his lab is uh, Robert Barkley. And so we were both in that same lab, even though that lab really is a bat lab. He was sort of like this, um, you know, kind of intruder, the non-bat person in the lab. But uh, he was, yeah, he, he managed to uh, talk his way into it because it was, a, you know, the, the memology lab at the University of Calgary. And he really wanted to do a degree there. So I met him in the lab. And then he was actually also doing uh, genetics work up at the U of A. So our paths crossed a lot. And before you know it, we moved to uh, BC together and he was actually already living in BC before he uh, came over to Alberta to do his degree. Okay, excellent. So what what did you do for work when you moved to BC then? Well, that's an interesting question because I really, at that point, uh, knew I wanted to continue to research bats. So I didn't know what that was going to look like. But honestly, I was at that point almost um, interested in following the model that my husband, Michael, was was following, and that was to be an independent research scientist. So he, studying grizzly bears, kind of opened up a lot of funding opportunities for him, and he was working with the U.S. government on establishing um, linkage corridors to get grizzly bears to move across uh, the, the Highway 3, which is a, a fracture um, zone in, uh, in B.C. For, for bears, and that was actually part of his Ph.D. was figuring that out. And so I thought, maybe I'll try and do this too trying uh, to be an independent research biologist. So I tried it for a few years. Uh, at that time, there wasn't a lot of funding available for bats. Um, white nose syndrome had just been discovered, but it was not clear what was going to happen um, with it. And so um, I, I went straight into a postdoc, actually, then instead, and with Wildlife Conservation Society Canada, uh, and and literally brought sort of this research program to them a, and said, hey, let, let's do try, try and do big things for bats in Western Canada. And that just led then to this program that I have now that I've had with uh, Wildlife Conservation Society basically ever since, um, well, about 2010, I guess we started somewhere in there. Okay, and in the Wildlife Conservation Society, it's involved in, in a lot of different types of wildlife projects and, and that sort of stuff? Yeah, very much so. So Wildlife Conservation Society per se um, is a global wildlife conservation group. They they really focus on research-based conservation. And so they're found all over the globe. Um, you know, they they kind of the way they operate is they try to get, you know, people who are, are good, get them trained um, to run their own conservation programs in each country. So you'll find, you know, when you, you Google it, they've got, you know, uh, programs in, in you know, Mongolia and Congo and Rwanda and so on, you know, they're very, um, they're very active around the globe. So I'm with Wildlife Conservation Society Canada, uh, sort of um, our country um, program, and our head office is in Toronto. Okay, interesting. Now, is it, is this like an NGO then? Would that yep, be how it's, it's characterized? Okay. Yeah, it's a not-for-profit. Um, we are kind of unique in terms of wildlife conservation because we're so research focused. So we will um, spend a lot of time collaborating with universities. Um, we have students. I have several master's students right now. Um, and so we work with researchers to, you know, to kind of solve conservation problems. Um, and, you know, I, I guess, yeah, certainly there's, um, you know, some other NGOs that, that do a bit of that, but I think we're kind of unique in, in taking such a heavy focus on that. And that's the primary focus then. Yeah, it is. And then we work, um, also kind of our, our head office staff is very involved in, um, working with governments and working within governments, you know, so for example, um, our, our chief scientist, Justina Ray was, um, the co-chair of the terrestrial mammal committee for Kasiwik for a number of years. And so that was, you know, a, a really nice way to to take what we were learning and, and what others learn a, about wild uh, wildlife species at risk and turn it into legislation. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, well, that's really interesting. Well, I, I think we have a pretty good sense of, you know, who you are and what you're doing now. Um, I guess the, the big question for me right now is, you know, bats have been a preoccupation of yours for a long time. So what, what started that? What was the, mm-hmm. like, you could have studied anything. Why bats? Well, it's funny you say I could have studied anything because honestly, when I was in undergrad, I was pretty focused on just being a teacher. Now, you know, I think when you're in high school, there's a certain number of, of jobs that you become aware of and they're pretty standard, right? And one of them was a teacher and, and, and that seemed appealing to me. And so I started just, just, you know, plowing through to be a teacher and it was in, um, my second last year, I had, um, a, a professor of mine approached me and say, would I like to work for him for the summer as a research assistant looking at uh, solitary wasps? And honestly, I didn't even know research really existed. So I thought, well, that sounds interesting. Sure, I'll try that out. And so uh, throughout the summer, he tried very hard to get me just interested in research. Um, he had this, this ulterior motive, I guess, to to get me uh, to uh, to be a researcher. So by the end of the summer, I was definitely interested, but. Uh, I had noticed at that point that someone at the University of Calgary, there's, there's this binder, remember, that listed what everybody did. And I noticed someone studied bats. And I didn't know why that interested me, really. It was just sort of this little light bulb that went on that went, thought, wow, that's that's pretty cool. So, yeah, I was introduced to that professor then, and I worked for one of his graduate students the next summer. Um, and we were doing a project on a medicine hat on big brown bats. And I, I kind of describe it as love at first bite because <laughs> big brown bats are extremely, um, well, they have extremely strong jaws, put it that way. And of course, you grab any wild mammal and they're going to try to bite you. And that's the first thing that this bat did uh, until I learned how to hold them properly where then they can't bite you. And of course, they're actually quite, they're very intelligent, actually. So so pretty soon, you know, after you've been handling a bat, they usually kind of figure out that you're not, you're not going to... Uh, kill them. They're going to be fine. And they relax. But it was that love at first bite. Then I went, this is this is amazing because this bat had a band on it. Um, and I remember looking at the band record. So a band is just a little um, marker on its wing, a plastic ring, basically, that uh, allows us to identify that individual. And this project had been going on for a long time in Robert Barkley's lab. And so there was a lot of bats that had banded. And I was just looking at the age of the bats. And the one that I was holding at that time, I thought, was almost as old as me, if not older. And I couldn't believe it because I thought, how is it that such a small mammal can live to be so old? It breaks all the rules. All the rules I've been learning as a student in undergrad is like, this isn't right. These small mammals, they shouldn't be living this long. And and so that intrigued me right away um, to try to figure out more about them. And and yeah, I think I just dove into that. That is intriguing. You know, if somebody would have asked me, I mean, my first degree was in biology and I, I did work in wildlife for a while. If somebody would ask me what the life expectancy of a bat would be, I would probably have said two or three years, four years like a mouse, you yep. know, just because, you know, those small mammals, their hearts are beating awfully rapidly. And uh, Well, they, you know, they are. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, a bat, um, their heartbeat, like it can slow a lot in hibernation, but when they're flying, it can be like a hummingbird, thousand beats a minute. But then in, in hibernation during the winter, it slows down to a couple of beats per minute. So they're just, yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating. And and you're right, like mice only live a couple of years. Uh, and they have a lot of young during that time, right? But, uh, but bats, they just have a completely different strategy. They're more like a, a grizzly bear because they live long and they have few young. So, you know, here in Western Canada, most... Most bats will only have one young per year. And on average, there's about a 50% chance that that pup will survive to its first year because it's it's either got to migrate or it's got to hibernate. Right. That's that's just fascinating. So, okay, so you've, you've developed this interest in bats and that that started you on your path into research and getting your, your graduate degrees. Um, so I'd like to talk a bit about bats. Uh, now... <laughs> Uh, That's my know, favorite think, topic. Let's do it. Absolutely. I think we could probably talk a lot about bats. <laughs> we could. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm fired up. This is really interesting because I, I grew up on a farm in northern Alberta and we had a lot of bats in our barn. And uh, Oh, where in remember, Alberta? Uh, up in the Peace Country. Oh, yeah. And, you know, yeah. and I don't know what species they were. They were about the size of a, maybe a big mouse. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know what those might have been. There's, I know there's what, what is in, in British Columbia we're at. There's what, 15 species of bats. Is that correct? 
give or take? Yeah, give or take. Um, there's a few species that we've recorded acoustically um, based on the, the ultrasound that they produce. We, we've, we've basically recorded their presence, but we've not cap- captured them to conclusively uh, say they're here. So we could have up to 17. Okay. Okay. So that's quite a few species, really. Well, it is. Yeah. And the little, um, call them the little brown jobbies, the LBJs. Um, they're little and they're brown. And in a, in BC, there's actually eight species of, of those. So, so when you describe over in Alberta in the piece, you know, they're little and they're brown. So there's there's <laughs> quite a few bats that would fit that profile. There is. Okay. Well, that <laughs> yeah. makes sense then. Yeah. Okay. So now one of the things about bats, I think, is that a, a lot of people do have a fear of bats. You know, people are nervous around bats. There's some, you know, uh, lore that comes out of Europe and other places that isn't necessarily all that positive towards bats. Uh, but what, like, they're a fascinating animal, and they, they like you say, they, they can live a long time. What, what have you learned that's been, like, other than, you know, their longevity, what are the things about bats that, have, you know, that surprised you the most as you got into researching them and, and studying them and learning about them? Oh, wow. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I think, so some of the key things that I've learned in, in my research has really been focusing on, um, this is going to sound really technical, but thermoregulation. <laughs> so uh, what allows bats to live the life they do is the fact that they don't keep um, a warm mammalian temperature like we do. So they're very unusual um, for mammals because most mammals like us are sitting, you know, around 37 degrees Celsius, right? Our bodies are warm all the time and we fuel our bodies with food and we can keep that body temperature going because we burn through our food and our, and our fat when we need to and so on. Um, Bats have a big problem because they're the only flying mammal. And so when they are flying, they're using a ton of energy. Flight is extremely energetically expensive. Um, Insects don't provide a really fatty food source, right? They're mostly protein. And so there's this conundrum. How do you, how do you keep, um, you know, looking for insects and, and carrying on life essentially when you don't have a super rich energetic food supply, it's hard to get that food, um, and, and that food is also not all that uh, common if, if the weather's cold, right? So bats are out flying at night and, the, and, and all, like all species in, in Canada feed on insects. So they have to go out at night and they're feeding on these insects. And if, if you've noticed like on cool nights and even by the middle of the night when it's getting kind of the dew point, the insects are sort of gone, right? So it's this really scarce food supply, um, and, and so they would literally, and of course, they're only feeding at night. So they would literally have to feed round the clock on kind of insects always there to keep up um, a mammalian body temperature because that, that burns through a ton of energy just keeping warm, let alone flying. So the cool thing about bats is that they literally can be more like a reptile, like a snake. They can just surrender their body to, their, to the temperature around them. And then, and then their body just becomes whatever temperature they're sitting in. So if they're sitting in, you know, um, a cold rock crevice, well, then their body's really cold. Um, if they're sitting in an attic in, you know, where they're getting a lot of heat from, from the sun heating up the attic or, or even maybe a bat box where it's heating it up, then, then they're getting their heat through the sun essentially. And their body is staying warm thanks to the sun. So then they're not really spending a lot of energy, right, to to do that. And so that's what I spent a lot of time studying, uh, especially for my master's, was figuring out how do they do that? Because if their body is cold, then they can't do all the things they need to do as a mammal. So they can't, for instance, produce milk for their young. They can't even really grow that fetus because all the cells have to be dividing. So if they, there's this cold little, imagine little ice cube, which some people literally, they find a bat that's, we call torpid. It's very cold. And they think, oh, this bat's dead. Ah, but it might not be. In fact, sometimes and a lot of times these bats are just, are this cold because they're in torpor and they're saving energy. But what that body needs to warm up in order to, you know, grow the fetus and then feed their pup. So females have this uh, really crazy problem that they they don't have enough energy 
to, to do all the things that females need to do and produce young. So they have to be very, very strategic. And that's why they will find places that are hot to keep their body hot and they don't have to do it for themselves. Hence, well, that is very reptilian, isn't it? It is, exactly. Yeah. It's so like a snake. It's like cold or warm, depending on what they need to do. If they, if they don't need to do anything, they'll just go cold. If they have to do something, they got to they got to be hot. Yeah. Now, so say you have a bat that's flying around at 7, 7 p.m. and all the insects are out and it feeds and then, you know, by midnight it's only 8 or 9 degrees. Does the and the bats say no longer feeding it goes back to wherever it's uh what what, are the, what do you call it? roosting Roost. for bats? Yeah, roosting. Roost. Yep. Um, will its temperature at that point go down to the ambient temperature, or if it's only is, is that more if they're going to be uh, in that in that location for a longer term? Like, can they can they turn that on and off in a in in a day or like in a few hours, or how does that work? Yeah, they can easily do it in a few hours. So often this will happen. Um, the 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 bats will go somewhere once the insects are not all that prevalent they'll go somewhere and and let their bodies get really cold um, and that works out well because usually dawn is our coldest temperature right so they just surrender let their bodies go cold they're saving tons of energy then they're not trying to keep their body going and, and they're not really doing much i mean their cells are basically slowed down and and not really um using any energy but but that changes as the as as they um start nursing young. So a female that's got a pup to go back to, she can't afford to do that because she's got a hungry pup. So she's going to go back and she's going to have to stay warm so that that pup can feed. And and she might use small bits of torpor, lower her body just by a few degrees. Um, but for the most part, she's going to try to get a roost that's, that's still pretty warm, even at dawn. And that's where things like building buildings become very handy because they stay warm. Uh, other other types of roosts will go cold. Um, so like, you know, up under bark, some some species don't even use buildings. They'll only roost in trees. So they'll go into, you know, into bark. They'll try to get into cavities and, and nestle together. So one strategy is if, if the roost isn't going to warm you, everybody clump together in one big group and try to keep each other warm so that, again, they don't have to spend too much energy. And so that's why often we, we see female bats in clusters or colonies, we call them. And they can be huge. Hundreds or even thousands of bats will come together. And those are the females that are raising pups. And they they literally have to do that to keep each other warm and help each other save energy. Well, that's fascinating. So for the the, the bats that are in torpor, if, if they're disturbed, can they come out of that fairly quickly no. to, to fly away? No. Okay, so they're basically... It's a slow process to come out of it. Depends on how deep a torpor they're in. Because like I said, if they just lower their body temperatures a little bit, you know, let's say they're sitting around 30 instead of instead of a mammalian 37, for example. They're saving a lot of energy still. Um, but if something did become a problem, like a predator, then they're going to be able to warm up fairly quickly within a few minutes. But if they've gone into a really deep torpor uh, on, a, on a particularly cold roost, like in the spring, when the, when the temperatures are really cold, those bats could take 15 minutes to warm up. Um, so in other words, they're, they're kind of sitting, sitting ducks, sitting bats, uh, for a predator and that becomes a problem for sure. Yeah. Now, now speaking of that, what, what types of predators do bats need to be concerned with? Um, well, in urban environments, it's definitely bats, or, sorry, cats, <laughs> cats are the, the, the prime predator on, on bats in urban environments outside of that, uh, snakes, owls. Um, during the during the day, um, there also can be you know if they haven't hidden well enough, there can be um, predation from from day day birds like um, corvids, uh, ravens, crows are pretty smart. Uh, even um, uh, barred owls will take and and find where bats are and and then get in you know try to get in under the the bark or whatever to get them. Um, and I have actually over in Alberta Alberta when I was uh, radio tracking bats, so I put little transmitter, very tiny little transmitters on their backs, glue it on with some non-toxic um, glue. And then we could follow them using a, a radio receiver. And one time I found my bats, there's two of them actually, and they were under a really big rock. Now, some species of bats roost under rocks, but not this one. This was big brown bats. They don't roost under rocks. So immediately I knew something was wrong. <laughs> I started fishing around and out popped a very angry bull snake who had eaten both of my transmitter bats. Yeah. So, um, Oh, interesting. Snakes definitely are, are 
a predator. Well, I guess snakes yeah. can get into the places where bats like to roost quite easily. Yeah. Often, I would imagine. Yeah. How, so is how do you predate- cap- how do you capture bats? Oh. <laughs> Um, I, yeah. I don't imagine it's something you could chase around with a little butterfly net. No, that um, in a way you can. Like sometimes if oh. you're in an attic, you would do that, right? Oh, Try to okay. catch them there. But no, mostly you use um, mist nets. So it's the same type of, of uh, net that you would use to capture like birds. So I don't know, you know, if, if you have seen anything like this, but basically imagine a volleyball net. Okay, it's like that, but much much finer to the point that. You know, um, it's very thin. They're almost like threads, okay, single threads that are weaved. And then the trick is to have them in what we call tiers and with a a little pocket under each tier. So the bat flies up to the net, okay, and they will sense it, okay, because A, they have good vision. um, So if it's light enough, like a full moon, they'll see it. Or they will pick it up with their echolocation, which we can talk about um, uh, eventually here. But well, they'll detect it. And and the catch is that by the time they turn away from the net, they don't really have time to get around it, right? Because we use very long mm-hmm. nets. So they'll try to turn, but then they don't get far enough and they usually, or, or they'll try to go up or over it. And again, we use right. big nets, right? So then they hit the net, they fall down into a little pocket, get all tangled, uh, and then we extract them out of that. Okay, so you said something there that totally blows everything out of my mind that I've ever thought about bats. You said they can see the net. Yeah. There's a, there's a saying, blind as a bat. Everybody, growing up, you always said bats are blind. All they use is their echolocation. So yeah. they can see? They see very well. Um, some even have good color vision. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, it is just a complete myth. Yeah, they have great vision. Um, oh, and I think I it's no a. Idea. I think it's probably uh, because they do have quite small eyes. Um, and, of course, they're flying around in the dark. So, you know, I think the assumption somewhere along the way has been, well, yeah, bats mustn't be able to, to see. They're flying in the dark. Why would they need eyes anyways? Um, but but they do they do see and in fact I have a hard time catching bats on full moon nights most of the time I don't even try <laughs> because uh, the moonlight just allows them to see uh, my nets and unless I can get them tucked in under a tree into what we call moon shadow and and sometimes the bats will be going into the moon shadow spots to forage because it's safer for them because the owls can't see them then. Hmm. That's crazy. Well, that's, I have no idea. That totally ruins yeah, everything that, I've that, ever had. Yeah, I, 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 I was. I'm with you on that, Steve. I didn't realize bats could see that well. Now, as far as I, now, is the strategy for night hunting with bats purely to evade predators themselves, or like it what's is. the what's the reason that they're mostly active at night? Yeah, is that, that, is that's that primarily. Yeah, it? that's the theory. Is that you know evolutionarily, um, they had comp- there would have been competition for insects during the day because of of you know, other insect eating um, animals. So like today, you know, we, we call swallows day, day bats. Like that's what we just refer to them as because they really very similar and they're in their, you know, uh, eating a lot of insects. Okay. They, they're basically from, you know, kind of later in the evening, they're wrapping up eating as the insects are becoming uh, more and more prevalent. And then they just start to, to go into their nests when the bats are coming out of their roosts. And they sort of take over. And and so they're this prime, you know, the prime insect eating um, animal at night is certainly bats. And and so the idea is that competition probably allow, you know, cause them to go into into night, but definitely predation as well. Because yes, daytime birds are, are certainly um, can be predators on bats as well. So yeah, that, that does make sense because I mean there's a lot of birds that do feed on insects as well, I'd imagine. And uh, birds as we know are most bird species are active during the day. Yeah. So it makes sense. That's a, a niche that probably wasn't overly congested that they could go, take advantage of. Go to the night. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So, and and they could, but they can see just fine in, in, in bright daylight. Like they're not overly sensitive to light, anything like that, as far as you know. They don't, well, it depends on the species actually. Um, I mean, what a lot of people don't know also is that not all bats, um, hide and tuck away into crevices so most bats will tuck into something like under under bark um into a rock crevice into a bat box into someone's you know roof line they'll they'll tuck up under your roof or into your attic uh 
But there's actually here in BC, there's two species um, that don't go into crevices um, for the most part. It's a uh, hoary bat and eastern red bat. And what they do, we call them tree bats because they literally go to kind of the, the tallest tree they can find and they just hang out in the leaves. They, they literally hang <laughs> upside down in clumps of leaves. Um, and, and what's really cool is they mostly, a lot of them just kind of hang from one foot too, instead of two. And we think, again, that makes it look like a leaf, a petiole of a leaf, right? And so they just look like a leaf swaying in the wind with the rest mm -hmm. of the leaves. <laughs> so their camouflage is really good. Yeah. So are they found throughout BC? Well, uh, hoary bat is. Eastern red's a really cool story, actually. Eastern red bat used to just be that in the east. Okay. And when I was doing my work over in Alberta, um, we started recording and, and occasionally capturing some eastern red bats up in the Fort McMurray area. And we're like, wow, this is really cool. This species we didn't even know we had. And then before you know it, started to get more common and more common. And then when I moved to BC, we, we were like, we thought we had um, what was called the Western red bat, which is really only found in California. Turns out it had been mislabeled uh, at the museum and it was actually an Eastern red. The reason uh, that we ended up sleuthing all of that out, it's a, it's a very long story, but I'll just make it you know short to say our wind turbines, the first farm that we put up in BC, in the Northeast area, in the, in the, in the Peace area of BC, killed a red bat. Which, of course, at that time, then we're like, wow, we didn't know we had this species. And it was an eastern red bat. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, wind turbines, that's what they do. Um, they do tend to kill the, the migratory bats. So the tree bats, the ones that don't tuck into crevices and just hang out in leaves. Well, they can't spend the winter here because <laughs> they live in leaves, right? So they got to head south. Um, and they get up into these air currents, you know, and, and just fly really fast, like, thousands of kilometers, possibly. I mean, we haven't been able to really nail down their migration routes yet, um, but they they run into problems. The, the, the wind turbines um, are unfortunately killing uh, lots of them to the point that hoary bat has now, we, we, there's a paper now that says, um, based on the current kill rates, those that species will like be extirpated uh, within the next 50 years if we don't do something. Oh, wow. So, is there what? What's the number of bats being killed by the windmills? Millions, um, millions, oh, wow. millions. Well, that's disturbing. Yeah, there was a paper out. It, it's a. It's quite a few years ago now that already estimated at two million. So we're we're well over that. Um, so, yeah. sorry, Corey, is going to talk about echolocation mm -hmm. because obviously their echolocation is not sufficient to avoid the windmills. Yeah. See, now that's a really interesting point because. That was a bit of a mystery in the beginning. Um, and the whole wind turbine bat problem actually in North America came to head in Southern Alberta. Um, in Southwestern Alberta, um, around Waterton, there's a lot of wind turbines there and these bats started showing up. And the question was, what's going on? Why, why would these turbine blades be hitting bats? They should be able to figure them out, right? Uh, with their echolocation. But when you actually look at the speed of the tips of these, and, and it's just like, well, that that kind of speed, no wonder. No, you, a bat wouldn't be able to detect that. So we've got this problem where bats have never had to detect anything moving that fast. Their echolocation isn't didn't evolve for anything that fast. So there's the, there's the um, potential then that they get hit by these blades as they go through. But then a uh, um, University of Calgary, a, a different researcher, Aaron Berwald, look closer and found that the blades weren't necessarily even hitting the bats. What would happen is they get in close to these turbines and these are tree roosting bats. And as I said, they go to the tallest tree on the landscape usually. Well, these turbines look pretty tall. They look like tall trees in a prairie landscape. So it might be that bats, this is a, you know, a hypothesis that bats as they're migrating, get drawn into these turbines because they look like a tall tree on the landscape. And then they get close enough to the blades that there's literally a low pressure zone that's created by them because they're moving so fast. Yeah. And it's called barotrauma. The bats don't even have to get hit by the blade. They literally, their lungs just go uh, because of the low pressure zone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so between getting hit and, and the low pressure zone, uh, a lot of bats are being killed. And 
they just, I mean, they, they're just such long-lived mammals. And, and we don't know how long hoary bats and red bats actually live. But we do know in Alberta, for example, uh, there's a cave where someone was uh, banding bats for, for many years, like since the uh, early 70s. And we have, you know, bats there that are, are in their 30s. I think the oldest one was uh, for sure 39 years old, either 38 or 39 years old. Right. So if you start looking at that kind of longevity for a bat, um, if you keep killing them every year on a migration route, they can't possibly replace their population with such a, a low birth rate. So, yeah, it, it's oh boy, a problem. That's, okay, so is there something that can be done to mitigate the damage windmills do with bats? Yeah, and this is not my area of expertise. Erin um, Berwald, um, she's actually a, a professor uh, up at uh, University of, of Northern British Columbia in Prince George. She just started a bat lab there. Uh, about two years ago now. And that's, that is her specialty. She's been studying that a lot, working with Bat Conservation International. Um, and so there are, there are studies that are being done. Some of these, you know, some of the promising um, repellents uh, include like white noise ultrasound. So literally taking a, a speaker and producing really high decibel loud ultrasound and bats, we know, try to avoid loud sounds that can interfere with them navigating and, and being able to find their prey. So this sort of leads into, you know, kind of understanding bat echolocation because bats, they, well, the way they echolocate is through, through ultrasound and they need to hear their echoes, hence the word echolocation. They locate their prey and locate where they are in the landscape by listening for echoes of the sound that they have generated out of their mouth or nose. And so if they can't hear that, then they're lost, um, especially if it's dark and they can't use their eyes. So they do tend to avoid those types of large, loud sounds. So that's the only, I think at this point, as, as far as I know, kind of the only promising way of trying to keep bats away from uh, from these uh, wind turbines. And so there's trials on like, going on as we speak to determine the efficacy of these things? There is. And it's going on for quite a while. It's been quite a challenge, I think, because the decibel level needed to push ultrasound out to the tip of a blade almost breaks physics because, <laughs> you know, such a small wave, ultrasound's very, very tiny wave. And so in order to get it to go that kind of distance is it, it's, it's almost impossible to get that yeah, level. That's one of Newton's Newton's things, isn't it? Like exactly. you lose, uh, for every meter you lose four times if you're, I don't, I don't know, like it's, yeah, it's diminishing returns. It is, it time. is. I, can, I don't, I can I don't remember the formula anymore, but yeah. Yeah, me neither, but so it, it's the issue. Yep. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about echolocation. So that that's pretty, pretty remarkable that bats can navigate and, and hunt so well with echolocation. So how precisely does that work? Um. Well, it's very good, um, but I caveat that with, it depends on the species as to how you define good. So, you know, there could, like, like bat, bats in general, when they produce ultrasound, um, they can detect very small objects. So, you know, sometimes we'll say, like, they can detect, you know, a human hair, which is also another reason they don't get necessarily caught in people's hair, right? That's another, that's another myth. But, but, but aside from that, um, not all species are going to be producing those high frequencies um, in the in the same way. Uh, to generalize, then, basically, a big bat is likely to be producing a very low frequency sound, and and that's because the fundamental property to remember about sound that's really really important for bats is this: um, if you need your ultrasound or your echolocation to go at a long distance in front of you, then you're going to have to use low frequency sounds because low frequency sounds travel further. It's kind of like headlights on a car then. So if you're driving along really slow, you can, you can have like, you know, pretty dull headlights and that's okay because you're not going very fast. So you don't need the, the light to go out very far. Well, same thing with bats. If you're not flying very fast, you don't really need your sound to go up very far because you're going to have time to react to, oh, that branch that's in the way or, you know, or, or that um, tree trunk to avoid that sort of thing. Right. But if you're going really fast, if you're flying so fast that you need to know something is in front of you, you need a lot of notice for that. <laughs> you're going to have to have bright headlights. 
right? So they have to have sound that goes out really far. And so that's kind of the the the, the interesting thing about about bat echolocation is there's there's these big fast flying bats like the ones I mentioned, the tree bats, the hoary bat and the eastern red. They fly fast. So their echolocation calls have to go at a long ways. So they're not going to be able to use really high frequencies. Whereas the little guys that, that, that fly really slow, like the LBJs I talked about, the little brown jobs, all the myota species, they, um, they tend to have higher frequencies because they really don't fly that fast. Uh, so yeah, this, this becomes um, a defining feature of their ecology though, because a long wavelength, i.e. A, a slower uh, or sorry, a um, yeah, a, a lower frequency that will go out further. The problem with those is there are long wavelengths, and they go right around small bugs, and they don't bounce back to create an echo. So if you imagine like a tiny little mosquito, and now there's this big hoary bat that's producing these low frequency sounds, the wave that's coming out of their mouth is literally so big, and it goes really far, but it goes right around that insect and doesn't bounce back. So the hoary bat doesn't even see the mosquito. But now imagine there's a little myotis bat or a little, um, little brown jobby um, with a very high frequency sound. And that means their waves are very, very tiny. They're not going to go very far, but they're very tiny. And so they bounce, they hit the mosquito and bounce right back to the bat. And the bat's like, yeah, there's food right in front of me. And therefore it can eat the mosquito. So we, we do tend to say, you know, bats eat mosquitoes, for example, but not all species really see mosquitoes. Right, so they, so really, are we looking at hoary bats to eat mosquitoes? No, they're feeding on the big insects, the things that like the moths, and things exactly, like that. big moths, big big beetles, and it's the little bats that can produce the really high frequency sounds. Um, those are the guys that get to eat the small insects like the mosquitoes. Yeah. Now, is there any bats that can can change the frequency to get a better sense of the environment? Yep, small and large objects. Yes. So that's where he's going to go next. There's that big caveat. Okay, yeah, no, that's great. I'm yeah. glad you're... That's the big caveat is that some bats are very flexible and they can, they can, they have a big range and hoary bats are actually one of those and Eastern red as well. They do manage to increase their frequencies when they're really zeroing in on something. Uh, maybe they're moving in, in amongst some trees and, and they're detecting um, some, some little insects in there, still not as small as what uh a myotis little bat could do by far, but they do have flexibility and they, and they probably do this for a number of reasons. And one is to increase the breadth of prey that they can eat. Um, but the other thing, and I won't go into the physics of this, but the all bats, um, when they're larynx, uh, their voice vocal cords are producing sound. Um, they produce harmonics. So just like a stringed instrument would produce harmonics um, or some, you know, you could think of it as octaves of sound, uh, from one string, their vocal cords do the same. And so even though the the prominent sound that they're sending out might be a fairly low frequency, there are high frequency components to that sound. And it is capable of hearing the, the bounce of those high frequency components as well. So it's not completely, you know, if you will, blind to these to these smaller insects, um, but it's but it's a lesser component of their echolocation call. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, I spend a lot of time actually teaching bat acoustics. <laughs> That's um, that is one of my interests is is how do how do bats echolocate, and more importantly, how do we record that echolocation to tell the species apart? And so I spend a lot of time um, teaching people how to use bat detectors, um, and and how that all works. Yeah. That, that's fascinating. I, I'm just going to go on a, a brief tangent. I, I watched this show one time, and there was a. a a man who had been blind either since birth or childhood. Maybe you've seen this, Corey, but uh, he had learned to make clicking noises and mm -hmm. listen to the echoes to, mm -hmm. to determine his environment around him. And they have actually done MRIs on him and his occipital lobe of the brain, which is the vision component of the brain, uh, was active when he was making these sounds. So he's actually, he was actually generating visual uh, uh, representations from these sounds which would be much like a bat but anyway it was fascinating they, they had him in a gazebo and he's completely blind and he was clicking and everything and they had him draw it and he drew the gazebo right oh wow so, yeah you know so know it was that, just yeah. fascinating so <laughs> that is you know cool. i'm sure not to the resolution of a bat but i think you know that's just a fascinating uh yeah a way of of uh of uh mapping out your environment it's, yeah it's quite it, 
Yeah, it is. And and I know that they do make some devices uh, for people who are blind that that basically is echolocation for humans. Um, and it's, you know, you wear it on your chest and it, at least the old, the old type ones, maybe they've, they've developed them better since, since uh, I played with one, but, but they do produce sound. And then, and then the echo that comes back changes tone. And so you can tell if you're getting closer or, or far from something. So it's the same, yeah, yeah. same principle though. Same principle. So, I mean, we could talk a lot about bat biology and and, and their uh, natural history. I'd love to talk a lot more, but but before, I mean, we're 45 minutes in, even though it feels like five minutes. This is I know, fascinating. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the the challenges that, that bats face in our modern world and, and what we can do to mitigate those challenges and help bats along. Um, what can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, this is... This is always, um, I think, a, a hard thing for bat biologists to to think about right now today, and it's because you know we've we've done a lot of uh, we've done a lot of work with bats over the years. We we try to help them. We're researching them. Um, you know, we're we're working on on their conservation, but it's um, it's kind of a dire outlook, honestly, for bats in in North America, and. And, and it's, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, is the wind turbines that we've talked about because now, of course, uh, with climate change and, and the push to renewable resources, you know, it, it's likely that wind turbines are going to start to, to show up more in the landscape. And that, that's good for climate change. It's good for humans overall. It's not so good for bats, unfortunately. And, you know, that's unfortunately the reality and until we can figure out a, a solution and that, and we're not there yet. Um, but on top of that is white nose syndrome. So white nose syndrome is a fungus that was introduced um, with looks like from Europe based on uh, genetic sampling. And it, it was introduced into eastern northeastern US uh, and it's spread from what's thought to be a point source. It is uh, throughout eastern US and Canada and it's killed, well, they don't know how many anymore, just absolutely millions, millions of bats. Um, and unfortunately it jumped somehow over to the Seattle area in Washington back uh, in around somewhere between 2014 to 16. And it's um, spreading now in Western US. Um, and and there's a really good chance we have it in British Columbia. We just haven't detected it yet uh, through, through sampling. So um, in its wake, it's taking out some species and not others. Uh, so we have like, you know, 99% um, mortality rate on some of the species in in the eastern part of the continent where uh, species like little brown myotis that used to be one of the most common bats in North America is now extirpated. Um, they, they, they just simply don't find them or colonies that used to be, you know, in the tens of thousands, there might be a half a dozen <laughs> left. So, oh, I think you're muted, Jonathan. Sorry. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Okay. <laughs> I'm not used to being muted there. Uh, how does the how does it kill them? This fungus. Uh, so it's sort of a, a complex issue, but ultimately, what ends up happening is the fungus grows in the skin of the wings, and it literally burrows down into the wing tissue and digests it, and so. This happens only in the winter because that's when the bats are cold. Remember I talked about torpor. Well, torpor, um, or when the, when the bat lowers its body to its surrounding temperatures, that's what it does in winter. Okay. So, so in the summer, it's doing this on a kind of an hourly or daily basis, but in the winter, it does it for weeks or months at a time. And we call that hibernation. So this bat is sitting in a mine or a cave or a rock crevice and its body is extremely cold. It has to stay above freezing. So it'll find um, some sort of hibernaculum that is just above freezing. So let's say it's sitting in around four degrees Celsius. Well, that that that's a nice cold environment for a fungus to grow. So bats will will kind of roost anywhere between four and twelve degrees in the winter, and depending on how moist it is and and the exact temperature, that fungus can grow really well. And so it literally just starts to grow on the bat's wings and digest it. And by the end of the the winter this bat might have just big gaping holes in its wings so it can't fly. But often what happens before that is the bat will warm itself up. It'll spend all that precious fat, warm itself up to try to groom the fungus off because it can tell something's wrong. And unfortunately, because again, when a bat's cold, 
the cells can't do much, right? It's its own cells are really just barely functioning. Well, it doesn't have an immune system when it's in hibernation. So it has to warm itself up to jumpstart its immune system to try to fight off this infection. And it will try to groom and, and then it will go back into, into hibernation trying to save its fat, precious fat. But the fungus continues to grow, so it warms up again, and this happens over and over and over again throughout the winter. And, and there's a good chance that that bat just simply starves. It's just going to use up all its stored fat before the end of the winter. So that's kind of it. And, and there's more complications than that, too, but I won't get into them. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's ugly. It's an ugly death, for sure. Yeah, that does not sound like a pleasant way to go. No, no. And some some bats are definitely... Um, more susceptible to this fungus than others. And we think it has a lot to do with where they hibernate, the conditions and how well the fungus can grow. So, so you, are European bats adapted to this fungus? <clears throat> well, it depends on how you define adapted. Um, there's been a lot of study that's been done on the European bats and what they're, they're starting to figure out now, like at first they were hoping it was some sort of immune response, you know, that our bats could somehow build an immunity to this fungus uh, and then we could vaccinate them. And, and, and it's just not that simple. Um, it's starting to look, you know, that there's, there's maybe some genetic component to this, but for the most part, bats in Europe are roosting for the winter. They're hibernating in places where that fungus just doesn't grow well. <laughs> so in a way they've adapted in that, probably survivors have been survivors because they've selected places where the fungus doesn't grow well. It's more of an adaptive uh, change to avoid yeah, and the fungus. Totally. And, we're, and we are already seeing uh, this in the East. So some of the, some of the researchers doing work in the Eastern U.S., um, we have a conference every uh, year, the White Nose Syndrome Conference. And that was actually just uh, last week, I guess, and a couple of weeks ago now. And, and they were reporting on some of that, that, you know, we're, we're seeing the bats come back in some of these caves in small numbers and they're studying the re the, uh, the reason that those survivors are there. And, uh, and the conditions are different. These bats, uh, tend to be hibernating in, in different conditions that probably just, just mean the fungus isn't growing as well. Um, there is a little genetic component that they're finding now. So that's hopeful. Um, that, that, yeah, there's some sort of evolutionary rescue that, that might happen for these bats. So, so obviously there's some major challenges for bats lying ahead. Now, is there anything just the average person can do to make life easier for bats in their local environment? Yeah. Okay. So I'm glad you asked that because we can't do anything about white nose syndrome really. I mean, we're, we're certainly trying like WCS Canada and myself, um, is partnering with McMaster University and Thompson Rivers University and now Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. We're all coming together to actually test a probiotic, um, that has been developed literally from bats wings. It's sort of like this Robin Hood effect. Like we, we went out, we sampled a bunch of bats. We found little bacteria on some of the bats wings that fight off the fungus um, that causes white nose syndrome. And so we've, we've taken four of those, we put them together, called them a little, a little um, probiotic cocktail. And we literally are, are putting that into roosts of bats, big, you know, big roosts, like bats, uh, you know, um, sorry, thousands of bats in an attic, for example, we are, are going in, we're, we're kind of putting this probiotic down on the place that they roost. They're naturally picking it up as they move around in the roost. They're grooming. Um, and it's becoming incorporated into, the, into their natural wing micro, microbiome. And so then when they go off to hibernate, we're hoping that the, 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 uh, the beneficial bacteria then will keep that fungus at bay, you know, or, or at least keep the, the fungus from, from digesting too much of the skin so that the bat will survive the winter. So that's one thing that, that we're trying to do for white nose syndrome. But for the most part, the, you know, the public can't, yeah, can't do anything really to help us out with white nose syndrome. Um, and it's, it's almost, you know, difficult, I guess, to do anything about wind turbines. But what they can do is to try to kind of um, build resiliency in our bat populations because we're making it hard on bats uh, uh, to find good habitat for raising young and for and for foraging, right? You know, think about our urban environments now. Um, we're building really sealed houses. Older houses are being knocked down and replaced with with new structures. So there's less and less places for for these bats to roost. And you think, well, why are they roosting in our buildings anyways? Well, they're roosting in our buildings because we got rid of all of their natural roosts, right? We come in, we clear out the forest. Um, we, we, you know, we build the buildings, we pave the roads and, and the, the bats that are able to, to still stay there are able to do that only because they're using human built roofs now. And so as we start to 
kind of get rid of those on them and, and, and seal them out. We need to figure out how to give them something, you know, back so that they continue to live. And uh, people have been putting up bat boxes. Um, people, some people call them bat houses. And, and that's okay, except that a little box that, that people put out for bats doesn't replace an attic roost. And, you know, a, a, an attic roost, for example, uh, lets the bats move around all over the place and find the right temperatures they need to make that milk right? And, and, and grow that fetus and raise a young. Whereas a little bat box doesn't. In fact, we're finding with our heat waves now that some of those bat boxes simply overheat. And we've seen piles of bats die, just drop out of the box dead. So we are trying to get the message out there that help bats by um, not just putting up a single bat box, making sure you put up lots in different locations. We call it the Goldilocks approach. They need to find the just right temperature, not too cool, not too hot on every single day. And they need selection for that. So, you know, we understand people want to, to you know, to get rid of bats out of their buildings. Um, maybe there's a lot of guano building up um, or urine. And, and bats don't, you know, they don't alter their environment. They're not going to gnaw on things like mice do. But still people, you know, might might need to get rid of them out of the house if, if there's a lot of them. But they do need to put up not just a single bat box. They need to put up lots and maybe get the neighbor involved and, you know, get a community approach and give them lots of, of places to choose from. That will help them raise a young because we need every bat to produce a young successfully. Um, otherwise, the populations um, are probably going to plummet. And and White Nose is coming uh, to BC. Um, it's, it's already in a lot of places in the U.S. And our only hope really is to try to recover our populations and make sure that every, every surviving adult has a, a young. Because um, without them, <laughs> we're, we are facing problems. We don't have enough insects being eaten. Literally, they are eating forest pests, agricultural pests. And a new study, which unfortunately I even had, ha haven't even had time to read, it just came out, um, found out about it last week. And they have quantified over in the east areas that white nose hit the bats hard and the bats, lots of bats died. Those areas are actually seeing less farmland now producing food. And they think it's because the cost of producing food has gone up because they're having to use way more pesticides to respond to the fact that the natural pesticide, i.e. bats, <laughs> isn't there anymore. And so we are, we're, this was the first study that's been done. And I think, you know, we're going to see more of this, but there's a, there's a monetary cost um, to, to seeing uh, bat populations decline. And so we need to, to keep that up and, and for health too, because we also know that biting insects uh, carry human disease. So it's, um, it's also important, I think, you know, just for a healthy ecosystem that we keep our bat populations um, thriving. I I agree with all that, Corey, and and yeah, it's it's staggering when you think of the impact that that uh, you know a, a, a species like bats can have on insect populations, and just the ripple effect that can have if those insect populations aren't aren't controlled by their natural number one natural predator, probably. Um, but I have to say, we've got bats in our soffit of our house. We've had them for a few years now, and I haven't done anything about it. I'm just going to let them live. So I, th I feel like, hey, I'm doing my part. Yeah. <laughs> you are. Every evening, they, they fly out of the soffit. I, I like seeing them, and I like them around the house. Yeah. I, I, I like bats a lot more than I like mosquitoes. I can tell yeah, you that. Yeah, we got them in our sheds. I've, I've seen them. I'm like, all right, you can stay. I love them around. Yeah. So totally. Well, honestly, it's the, it's the little brown jobs that, that tend to live in buildings, and they're the ones that feed on the mosquitoes. So they will, they will make um, an, a definite noticeable impact um, on, on the mosquito population. If you're sitting on your porch, watching bats come out of your house, you're, you're benefiting. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> I love that. I, I think I've told you this before, Corey, uh, my cabin up at the Duncan is a great place for viewing bats in, in the evening. They're just zipping around all the time. And, and it's, it's a pleasure to watch them. It's just, their, their aerobatics are impressive. No, um, hopefully we can keep them, you know? Yeah, it, absolutely. It'd be very, people, it'd be very sad and lonely in the evening, not to see them fluttering yeah. around. And and that's the case in the East. I hear that a lot from cabin owners now in the East. They used they to watch they bats. They night show anymore. No, that's it. That, nope. that is really sad. They're gone. So we're, we're sneaking up on an hour and I know we have okay. a lot more we could talk about um, and hopefully we can have this conversation again and go on uh, into other, oh, other yeah, uh, yeah. subjects. But before yeah, we totally. go, I'd like you to uh, talk a little bit about your recently published book. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a bit of a brain dump. Um, I've been doing bat research, like I said, for a couple of decades now and finally um, had a chance to, to put it into a book. So uh, myself and um, 
uh, some co-authors, uh, Dave Nagorson and Mark Brigham and Jared Hobbs. Jared Hobbs is also a photographer in British Columbia. And we got together and pooled all our information and photos uh, and put it into a book that just came out at the end of March um, called Bats of British Columbia. And it's uh, through the Royal BC Museum Publishing. So um, it's available on their website, but um, I noticed it's also on Amazon. So. Okay, well, I hope people uh, that are listening pick that book up. I'm sure it'll be fascinating. I know I'm going to get a copy. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's everything you want to know, and probably a heck of a lot more. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I'm sure I'll, I'll really enjoy it. Well, thank you, Corey, for taking the time to talk to us tonight about uh, about bats in, in British Columbia and around North America. And uh, yeah, I've I've learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks so much. It was fun. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Okay. Well, hopefully, we can do it again. Yeah, there's still lots to talk about. <laughs> there is. I know. There really is. I have a lot of questions yet, but um, yeah, we'll save well, that for uh, for uh, the next uh, next uh, in this series on yeah, bats. Sounds good. Bats. Yep. Yeah, bats part B. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. Thanks, Corey. Okay. Bye.